Good morning. Quite a few, quite a few binaries in that uh, reading. Um, hopefully we'll do some reclaiming of the Bible this morning. Um, trust me, you're in good hands. Um, kia ora. In, in, in Australia, we start um, a talk with, a, with an acknowledgement of country. Um, so I'm going to do that in the best way that I know how to this morning and acknowledge this place, Otatahi, and the traditional and indigenous people of this land, and pay my respects to elders past, present, and future. Uh, and to any Māori, our indigenous people here today, I extend that respect to you. Uh, thank you, Jeremy, and to others uh, for the warm welcome onto this land, and I will aim to tread compassionately and respectfully during my stay. Uh, back in early 19, I was scrolling through Facebook, and uh, a queer Christian friend shared a post about a conference that was happening in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and I was like, oh, how interesting, clicked through, scrolled through the little event page, and saw that they were running a competition at the time to win two free tickets to the event, to the conference. Um, the, like, to enter the competition, you just had to tag the friend that you wanted to go with and then share it on your Facebook page. So um, I tagged my queer Christian adventure bestie at the time, Liam, um, and you know, just said, we'd love to come across the ditch and be with you. Um, and I think a few weeks later, it was announced that we had won the tickets. Uh, and so kind of last minute, we, thank you, we <laughs> booked, booked flights, found some accommodation um, and made our way here to see some familiar faces that I see here um, and be in community with. Um, and uh, during that stay, some highlights were that I learnt the phrase yeet. Um, thank you, Aotearoa. <laughs> Um, I realised that my twin is actually Craig Watson, who is the coordinator, and um, let's see, I'm keen to recreate this photo <laughs> uh, while I'm here. I didn't bring a blue button up, so if anyone has one I could borrow for an evening or for even just a moment, that would be great. Um, yeah, good one. <laughs> um, the keynote speaker for that conference was Padre Otoma, who shared some beautiful poems with us. Um, and when, uh, when you're in this space of kind of being queer and Christian or being an ally in this space, um, working for change, whatever or wherever your context is, um, it's just so healing and energizing to be among your people. Um, this work is hard and it's often with limited resources and um, we need the energy of being amongst community uh, together. So I'm really glad and privileged to be here and I really hope this space um, is the much needed place of refreshment and refuge for you over this weekend. Uh, since that conference four years ago, uh, I graduated from my Masters of Divinity, uh, co-founded an independent queer-led church in Sydney on Gadigal country called New City Church. Uh, I realised my gender identity is genderqueer. Uh, I started letting people in on that journey, uh, adjusted my pronouns to better fit me and to feel right. Uh, I started going to the gym, which was actually one of the toughest identities to reconcile within myself uh, and being a gym goer. Um, but it gave me an incredible amount of gender euphoria, so I've had to. Um, I had top surgery in May last year, and I started taking hormones in August. Yeah, 
Thank you. Um, the, yes, yeah, yeah. The last few years have uh, really been about me embracing my queerness and my faith really authentically together. That's been a long journey. Uh, I've been doing an immense amount of learning through my own lived experience uh, in doing pastoral and advocacy work and also in engaging the ponderings of many Christians from many different kinds of lived experiences and contexts to me. Uh, this talk today is very much uh, formed by a thesis I wrote in the final year of my MDiv, so I've got something in my eye. Um, so I'm attempting to consolidate 19,000 words into a session this morning. Please give me some grace, but let's dive in. <laughs> uh, also, I think it's like 7.30 for my body, so uh, I'm really just like fueled by caffeine and sugar right now. Um, and a banana that the hotel actually found for me, uh, thankfully. <laughs> um, so, kind of a big topic for this morning. It's early, but we're going to jump in. Um, our world has a gender problem. The white evangelical Christian part of the world will tell you this gender problem is the trans and gender diverse people and the drag queens who entertain kids. Um, but in the wake of International Women's Day last week, um, we know our more sustained and foundational problem with gender uh, is gender-based discrimination and violence. In my lived experience and my academic research, I see that our gender problems begin with the binary. That is, the telling of people that there are two strictly structured ways to be human, two ways which are externally dictated to us a lot of the time and are which are continually policed by those who believe in its prominence. The binary is not just violent because it restricts freedom of expression, but I'm going to rattle off a few statistics which depict this problem. They're hard to hear, uh, but hopefully I can hold you through this. Um, in Australia, a woman is killed each week by their intimate partner. Uh, only six countries in the world give women equal legal rights as men. Women hold a quarter of parliamentary seats around the world. Women earn 70 cents for every one dollar of a man. Uh, only 52% of married or partnered women say they make free choices about their sexual relations, about their contraception and their health care. And in recent years, the international hashtag MeToo movement sparked an unveiling of gender-based sexual violence across the, across the globe. Uh, that's a focus on how it affects women. Uh, I found one that uh, really spotlight how, spotlights how this affects men. Uh, in Australia, for instance, and I'm not sure if this is reflected across the globe, but 74 to 77% of suicides are by men, disproportionately affects men. Um, what we will explore together this morning, heavy, I know, is that the binary tells men that they need to be strong, dominant, emotionless people who penetrate and regulate the lives of what is perceived to be the other half of the world. And when any of these people step outside of these norms, they face huge amounts of pushback. Uh, in this session, uh, there are three things I would love for you to engage with. Carl said last night that uh, his sermon was very much Pentecostal, and mine is very Anglican. I have three points. Thank you. <laughs> Good to know I'm among, among my people. Um, it's, ve it's very Anglican. Uh, I, I came from the Evangelical Anglican Church. Anyways, so our first point uh, for this sermon is that binary gendered norms initiate from oppressive patriarchal empires and not from God. Thank you. 
Number two, the breaking down of these man-made binary gendered categories is a revelation of the divine. And that gender expansiveness, that is, people who expand and disrupt binary gender norms are a divine source of healing for our world's actual gender problems, and we should embrace them as leaders. So, to explore that first point. Oop, I've gone too far ahead. Um, binary gender norms come from patriarchal empires. Uh, one of the patriarchal empires which intersects with the lives of the people who wrote sections of our Christian Bible was the Roman Empire, particularly of the first and second century when the Gospels and quite a few church letters were written. Uh, I'm going to summarise the structure of the Roman Empire a little bit simplistically, um, and just as I do that, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are always nuances, there are always people who break this trend, but this uh, simplistic structure um, was heavily influential to the culture and lives of the people at the time. Uh, this is a picture of the Roman Empire as it was structured. Uh, it was ruled by one man at the top, the emperor. Uh, you may have heard of Caesar Augustus. Uh, underneath the main monarchy was uh, varying provinces ruled again generally by more men. For example, there were a few Herods and Pontius Pilate, which led the area of Judea. Um, other names that might be familiar to you from the gospel stories. Um, underneath this headship was a hierarchical order where about 85% of people were peasants who existed to produce goods and riches which propped up the 10 to 15% of elites. Uh, this hierarchical structure was policed through dominating military violence, and often the religious institutions, in order to survive, were built into this hierarchical system. They collected tax, they uh, enforced their interpretation of the law, uh, and the story of Jesus, where we see both empirical leaders and religious leaders conspire in his trial and execution, is the perfect example of how the patriarchal empire enforced its rule. A bunch of socio-historical research into these social structures, these systems, these values of the empire tell us that gender was a central organising category of first century life. Life was divided by the binary, uh, and one side of the binary was heavily valued over the other. Men were believed to be strong and to be moral. Uh, they were delegated as the masters. Uh, women were believed to be depraved and irrational, it's hard to hear, uh, sometimes perceived as needing the lead and command of men. Uh, so this uh, one, one breakdown of this gendered framework, which organised social life, uh, is this. Uh, on the left, wait, on the right, um, are the things which are valued and ideal in, in the Roman Empire, things to which men aspired. Um, there is superior, superior, hard, active, dominant, inviolable, impenetrable, and self-disciplined. And on the left is a list of things to be despised, to be suspicious of, and to be controlled. Inferior, soft, passive, submissive, violable, penetrable, and ruled by emotions. What we see here is a picture of binary gender norms promoted by the patriarchal empire. Uh, it's a violent, domineering ideal of male behaviour, which today we call toxic masculinity. 
It's a framework where humans are split into two categories and tells men they must be strong and dominate at all times and actually fight off and protect their honour, while women are devalued, untrusted and diminished. Uh, it didn't mean that all men were in the right category. If anyone was soft or passive or dominated, they would be put into the category of woman. And so there was a real fear of femininity and a fear of transgressing these gender norms. Who in the room feels like this framework still feels familiar? We uh, feel the echoes of this, don't we? Uh, these social gender norms provided the perfect petri dish conditions for male entitlement to thrive. And here's a quote about life in the second century. A young man of the privileged class of the Roman Empire grew up looking at the world from a position of unchallenged dominance. Women, slaves, and barbarians were unalterably different from him and inferior to him. The most obtrusive polarity of all, that between himself and women. The gendered nature, or ex the gendered nature of existence in first and second century Roman patriarchy told men that they were entitled to rule over women simply by being male. And within this broader societal structure, the household uh, was a central place where these kinds of relationships were magnified and enforced. So some people may have heard of the pater familias, which was the father of the household, uh, kind of mimicked the emperor um, as the head male of each household and had authority over everyone else. So that's our first point in a bit of a simplistic, quick, overview, hopefully you've got the picture, um, binary gendered norms initiate from oppressive patriarchal empires. So to the second point, the breaking down of those man-made gendered norms is a revelation of the divine. In the Gospel of Matthew, these patriarchal gender norms are engaged really interestingly. Uh, Matthew consistently talks about this other empire that comes from the realms of the heaven, the realms of God, that actually doesn't categorize people by gender. It doesn't categorize people by status or class or any other human category at all. The Gospel of Matthew conveys an empire with completely different values, ascribing honor and status to those who are told they have no value. And this empire subverts and confronts the colonial patriarchy of the Roman Empire. Here's where one of my favorite metaphors used in the, in the Bible enters our conversation. The kingdom of heaven. It's a phrase and a literary motif repeatedly used throughout the Gospel of Matthew as a direct affront to the kingdom that is patriarchal, hierarchical violence. To capture a little bit of this snapshot, in Matthew 16 to 20, we see a series of statements which subvert Rome's imperial patriarchy. Whoop. Least is greatest. Greatest is least. The kingdom belongs to children, those little ones of the household. Last is first, first is last. Servant is great one or greatest, slave is first, humbled is exalted, and exalted is humbled. Where masculine dominance and hierarchy were treasured by the Roman Empire, the kingdom of heaven confronts any value of one person being ascribed value or status 
and its associated entitlement hierarchy over another human being. It disrupts the idea that people can be categorized with more or less value. It's overturning. We read from Matthew 20, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. Again, we hear this contrast between a kingdom where strength and dominance enforced on others, the masculine ideal, is rebuked and subverted. And the way that I understand this instilling of the kingdom of heaven is that as God moves into the neighborhood, as God moves into the world, uh, hierarchy is dismantled, oppression is disrupted, Societal structures and the way people relate to each other are renewed, restored, healed. They're replaced with nonviolence, equality, and justice. The kingdom of heaven values are neither masculine nor honorable, and discipleship, being part of this kingdom, is radically different to dominant masculinity. And so it's within this broader context of the Gospel of Matthew that we come to read chapter 19. We read a story where the patriarchy's household gender norms, those mini uh, emperor and people underneath him, uh, we hear a debate about what the relationship between a husband and a wife should look like. And at the end, there is a teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And when we bring all of this gendered baggage of these two kingdoms, these two empires, into the conversation as we engage this text, I believe some really interesting gendered values, or rather non-gendered values, come out of it. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any or every cause? Many scholars have linked this question with a debate between a few schools of the Pharisees about how to interpret Jewish divorce laws, and more specifically about like which of a wife's actions can be classed as indecent and therefore make a man's divorce of her lawful. Verse 3 for me read in the context of a patriarchal empire in the background, is a question that exemplifies binary gender norms of male entitlement and toxic masculinity. Let me rephrase this and see if you hear it in the way that I can hear it. Some religious male elites came to Jesus and they asked, how far do our rights as men extend over the women in our household? How much control can we exert over the lives and bodies of our women? Where's the line? And how much power does the law give us? This question makes me think of modern-day Afghanistan, where the Taliban has banned women from attending secondary school and university, along with so many other things. Or Iran where women are being forced to wear the hijab without their consent, found out last night it's illegal to dance as women in Iran. And Masa Amini, among others, have been killed for protesting this law. 
or in the United States where Roe v. Wade was overturned and there have been a sweeping range of legislations introduced by governing institutions where men largely hold power to make safe access to abortions impossible and most access to them illegal. For me, in these stories, I hear the echoes of the patriarchal empire through time. How far do our rights as men extend over the women in our spaces? How much control can we exert over the lives and bodies of women? Where's the line? How much power does the law give us? Jesus' response to this question is to quote from Genesis. Genesis 1:27 and 2:24. He firstly states, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And I think we could read this quote from Genesis as a way of Jesus reinstating a more foundational gender ideology, one which emphasizes that male and female were created at the same time and in the same way that the relationship between male and female is actually defined by equality, unity, similarity, solidarity, rather than separateness and distinction, which involved superiority and subordination. So Jesus could be quoting from Genesis to remove this differentiation of gender and hierarchy. Jesus also quotes A man will leave his father and mother and stick to, and this word means literally like glue, you stick to her, stick to his wife. They exist no longer two but one flesh. And therefore, what God has yoked together, let humans not separate or put room between. And this language of one flesh comes up in a few different passages it's generally used to refer to shared kinship between two people and what the obligations of those two people are as kin. So, for example, in 2 Samuel 19.13, David quotes the kinship obligation that Amasa has to him. Are you not my bone and my flesh? May God do so to me and more also if you will not be commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. One flesh language is a phrase that reminds someone... We're of the same kin. You have a responsibility to me. So thinking of the way that Jesus uses it in Matthew 19, he may be reminding the men of their kinship responsibilities to care for and support those who are of the same flesh as them. Men are not to leave their wives in socially vulnerable positions for the sake of their male status. Men are not to look for any and every cause to divorce their wives, but rather acknowledge their similarity to women, and remember their kinship responsibilities. Instead of divorce, stick to them like glue. I believe Jesus is chipping away and challenging the binary, how men understand themselves and women and how they relate to women, where binary centers on separateness and distinction, on male domination. Jesus' quote from Genesis could be to say, Actually, in God's kingdom, men are equal to, not superiors of women. Or if you're ready for it, it's actually to break down any distinctions, differentiation, or binary that humans have created. 
God created male and female together, and the command is, what God has yoked together, let humans not put room between. Since then, man-made patriarchal gender ideology has done the exact opposite of unity. The binary has put room and distinction between men and women. Rome loved masculinity and it feared femininity, putting that on two very opposite ends of the rope. And it could be that Jesus quotes from this foundational passage so men understand themselves not so differently from women and rather see that in God's creation of humanity, any binary constructions of gender were actually non-existent and even opposed. Any separation of the genders at all was not part of God's design and is not part of God's reign. What God has yoked together, let humans not put room between. Something to ponder. Uh, The verse uh, verse 9, which I haven't put on the screen, um, there were some nuances in the interpretation around divorce that I didn't really have time to go into. Uh, But I think in its most simplistic sense, uh, when the Pharisees then kind of come back and say, well, we had this this law to divorce women, and Jesus says, actually, no, it was because of your hard-heartedness that that was introduced, and then Jesus restricts the scenarios in which divorce can happen. I think that we can also read that as a rebuke of male dominance, just restricting that space of when that can happen. Uh, But finally, the kicker in verse 12, which is where things get really fun for me, but we needed to do a lot of that contextual work, I think, to even get through that passage, which has, for me, been used um, quite conservatively and against queer people to reinforce the binary. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus finishes by saying, let anyone accept this who can. Uh, I'm not the first gay or queer in the village to talk about the queerness of eunuchs. Uh, Who has engaged some form of like queerness, queer reading of eunuchs? Okay, yep. Um, Yeah, we're told about, not as many as I thought actually, so this is good. We're told about three types of eunuchs, which I've highlighted here. The first one, we have eunuchs from birth. Um, And I'm kind of just going to go through this content quite quickly because I really want to draw some implications. Uh, Eunuchs from birth um, were generally people born with, like, non-binary genitalia or who lacked reproductive organs. Um, The Jewish and the Greek and the Latin kind of had all different words for these experiences. Uh, They are potentially what we would today uh, recognise as intersex or people with a variation of sex characteristics. Um, And eunuchs have been a wonderful empowering figure for intersex people in readings of the eunuchs. Uh, Eunuchs who have been made eunuchs um, referred to a very awful slave tradition of men and boys who were castrated to serve in the royal administration and in households. Uh, It was an incredibly exploitative slave trade, which spanned at least 2,000 years across many empires. Uh, But what captured my interest about eunuchs was that they are consistently and confrontingly gender ambiguous. Uh, All the literature about them is just like, does not know how to categorize them in the binary, and people are just like all over the place and like, where do we put these people? 
Um, eunuchs were called tertium genus hominum, uh, a third type of human. Uh, Augustine about eunuchs said, neither is he changed into a woman, nor does he remain a man, and the marks of both sexes appear together. Uh, one writer in describing a character of a play who was a eunuch said that neither a man nor neither a woman nor a man being a eunuch rather synthesized mixed monstrous outside of human nature. Eunuchs were also able to function as intermediaries between like male and female spaces. Um, they were also able to like uh, operate between the court and the public, uh, between the sacred and the secular, uh, as well as like imperial households and nobility. So they kind of lived lives in this non-binary, liminal, fluid, ambiguous space. Uh, and Sean Burke, who writes a great book, who I think I've referenced, yeah, Queering the Ethiopian Eunuch, summarizes this data. The different and sometimes conflicting ways in which ancient discourses gendered eunuchs demonstrate how troubling their ambiguous bodies were for ancient constructions of masculinity. In some discourses, as we've read, eunuchs are gendered as not men, effeminate males, or half men, half males. In others, eunuchs are gendered as girls or as beings that have actually changed or are in the process of changing from male to female. In still others, eunuchs are gendered as hybrids of male and female, or as neither male nor female, and yet in other discourses, eunuchs are defined by the loss of masculinity or manhood, or even, as we've read, the loss of humanity itself. In this way, eunuchs are ancient examples of what we would call modern day gender expansiveness. And just to give you a basic definition of gender expansiveness, gender expansive or gender expansiveness has become commonly used to describe people who expand notions of gender expression and identity beyond perceived or expected societal norms, gender norms. It describes a wider, more flexible range of gender identity and or expression than typically associated with the gender binary system. Eunuchs are gender expansive figures because they did not fit into ancient prescribed binary gender norms and because the literature is just grappling all over the place with the expansive nature of their gender identity. So bringing all that together, if we follow the story from these two contrasting empires in the background of this conversation and we come to Matthew 19, I believe Jesus in this passage is trying to confront the binary gender ideology of the Roman Empire and in contrast uplift gender expansive eunuchs as a model for them to follow because they lived outside of these gender norms. Where the Roman patriarchy sharply distinguished a binary of status and power between men and women, gender expansive eunuchs destabled the patriarchal gender ideology which institutionalized men's dominance over their wives. 
and they displayed a more flexible range of gender expression than ancient gender constructions permitted. The eunuch embodies in themselves an alternative gender ideology of equality, connectedness between male and female, masculinity and femininity, similar, united, fluid. The gender expansive eunuch exemplifies a life that actually doesn't distinguish status, roles or rights according to gender. But rather, these people embody a unique way of being which removes gender distinctions, removes gender categories, removes a status enforced by a binary gender model. Eunuchs expand prescribed gender norms for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, which continually confronts patriarchy in the Gospel of Matthew. I believe there is great hope to be found in this teaching and in the eunuch example today. That is point two, point three is shorter. But point two, the breaking down of these man-made binary gender categories is a revelation of the divine in the world. I wanted to shift gears and tell you a bit about my experience of gender uh, before trying to get tie everything together for this session and kind of loop up point three. Um, I'm a good Anglican in this sermon. I'm walking you through. Um, one of my earliest memories that I can remember in my whole life was a time when uh, my dad was tucking me into bed for the evening, and in the only words that I had for the, the time, that time of my life, I said, Dad, can I be a boy when I go to heaven? I used to dream about, you know, wearing the clothes that uh, boys wear. I loved cross-dressing for discos and parties. Um, I took this so seriously that in year nine, I was given a boy part in a play, um, and I lent into that character so much that my mum came to watch the show, and I walked past her before, before the show happened, and I waved at her and said hi, and she walked straight past me and did not even recognise me. <laughs> uh, almost 20 years later, it took me, when I was listening to a podcast with someone describing their experience of being trans, uh, and they shared more and more of their journey, and I was like, yeah, yep, totally, yeah, I've experienced that, yes, yeah, that's me, uh-huh, yeah, yep. Wait, can we, everyone, can we just pause this? Is everyone else resonating with what this person is saying? Like, this is universal experiences, yeah? Um, no, no, we don't resonate with this. Um, and that was one of the first moments that I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I think I'm trans. Uh, and after kind of processing and adjusting to this new thing that I'd learned about myself um, and kind of finding the word that felt right, genderqueer, uh, and pieces sort of fell in place, like the time that I took dressing up as a boy in the play really seriously and that time that I said that thing to my dad, you kind of do that thing where in the present you're given this piece of information that then allows you to like see that that's been there all along and you kind of restore your life and all the dominoes just like fall into place and you're like, okay, sure, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I was able to accept that about myself once those pieces had kind of fallen into place and at that point I felt really liberated um, because I didn't have to pour all of this energy 
into performing gender anymore. I felt like everyone around me was doing the same thing, like we're all just doing this thing, it's pretty arduous, like just out here doing gender again today. Um, yeah. Um, the trans journey has not been easy, um, and affirming my gender has been a roller coaster of change, um, but it's also been beautiful. This is me in 2016 at my sister's wedding. This is me, uh, one of the first moments after my top surgery, kind of seeing my chest healed for the very first time, and uh, I'm just looking at myself in that photo, smiling. Uh, the second photo is the first time I went for a shirtless swim uh, in public. Uh, and that our last one is just me taking a selfie because I just love to do that these days. Uh, that's the first time that I applied uh, testosterone gel to my body and I took a photo. Um, there are different ways of taking hormones, one of which is through a gel. Um, I've since moved on and I, take a, um, I have a needle that I take every 12 weeks. Um, and this one's on my uh, birthday. Uh, and you can just kind of see the joy emanating. Um, I was featured in a... Uh, photo exhibition for World Pride. Um, that's me and my girlfriend. I've uh, since met, uh, kind of post all of this affirmation. And then this is a picture from uh, when our church was in the Mardi Gras parade and uh, I just went shirtless the whole night and it's the longest amount of time that I've been shirtless. Um, and the next day I went to the beach and after kind of being in a safe space and feeling like myself, I really, um, the next day at the beach just felt much more comfortable to be out and in public um, with my shirt off. Um, over the last year, I'm just going to go back here, over the last year particularly my friends have said, um, you're the same Steph but actually you're just more Steph um, and you look so relaxed. Um, you've changed, but you are you. I feel like I'm no longer a gender, but I'm Steph. Um, my uh, sister had a, a baby, and so I have a little nibbling, and we were thinking of, like, what are the non-binary names, and uh, I, I'm just my niece's Steph. Um, so I was like, it doesn't really resonate, titles don't really resonate with me, they're very binary. Um, so we say, oh, here's your Steph. Um, which is really beautiful. Um, what makes me me is not a binary category assigned to me, um, but it's more foundational aspects of my personality and values. Um, it's about being a good human and catching waves at the beach. Uh, in a blog I wrote a few years ago, I said that living into gendered behavior is less important to me than living into valued behaviors of faith, love, justice, and integrity. I'm not expending energy on fitting into a category, any, category anymore. I'm just living my values as Steph. Um, some wonderful first-hand experiences of gender-expansive people describing the way that they naturally live beyond separated binaries is, I don't really express my gender identity. I just express myself. I'll step in and out of categories to see what they're like, but I don't want to define myself by them, and I feel like to assign myself a nice, palatable gender term 
is more for other people's benefit than my own. Uh, many gender expansive people describe their gender as just something unique or other. Uh, M. Barclay, in the book that uh, Carl referenced last night, Transforming by Austin Hartke, says, I'm very convicted to speak about my own non-binary identity, not as in-between, but as more. I'm something else. Gender expansive people don't have the monopoly on gender expansiveness, but we are literally given no other choice than to confront gender norms because of who we naturally are. I'm also aware that I speak to this experience as someone whose cultural heritage stems from a colonial empire. Uh, and it's important for me to acknowledge and center that gender expansiveness and gender expansive people have been around forever in traditions which are much older than the queer rights movement of the Western world. The Mahu, the Vaka Sa, Lui Lui, Lua, Fafafina, Two Spirit, the Sister Girls and Brother Boys, Takatapui, which I went, learnt last night, and I would love to learn some more language from you about contextual experiences here. This is the gender expansive history of our world. And when the patriarchal empire colonized or attempted to colonize these regions across the globe, gender expansiveness was often targeted. We've been many places this morning. I'm gonna to attempt to wrap up this exploration. I was prompted to write my thesis and I'm passionate about this subject because I became increasingly aware of how patriarchal gender ideology was consuming the world. I've also experienced the way that the church paints LGBTIQA people as the world's problem with gender and sexuality. I saw the influence of a patriarchal gender binary show up in the continued reports about gender-based violence across the globe. And hearing from organizations and researchers in this space is that the primary driver of this violence is patriarchal gender norms, specifically frameworks which teach binary power differences between men and women. I saw the influence of a patriarchal binary show up in faith spaces when the hashtag church to movement uncovered global experiences of gendered abuse in churches. For example, in the USA, over 20 years of abuse by pastors was uncovered in the Southern Baptist Convention. And in Australia, a very recent report in 2021, commissioned by the Australian Anglican Church, my own church, found that churchgoers were more likely to be in an abusive relationship than those in the general population. And moreover, interviews um, and research showed that male perpetrators were using biblical teachings to justify violence. In many of these churches, gendered abuse also coexisted with teachings of a binary gender ideology that taught that God created two genders where innate and unchangeable differences exist between men and women. Sidelined to this experience was a church that with louder and louder voices kept preaching a binary patriarchal gender ideology in its fears and despise of anyone who transgresses gender norms. That is trans, gender diverse and other queer bodies. I've seen over 400 anti-trans bills that have moved through US legislation over the past five years pushed from the conservative Christian right. 
As a queer person, I've seen the way we get scapegoated by the church as the problem. When in reality, we have an ability to naturally challenge and disrupt the gender norms which continue to promote violence in the lives of so many in our world. I believe our faith teaches us that our gender expansiveness is actually a divine gift that we've been given to heal the world from the empires that are opposed to God. Patriarchal gender norms have caused immense harm within social history to the point that it is almost overwhelming to keep hearing about it. It has trained men to dominate, despise, and rule over women, to fear the expression of emotions, and to distrust anyone who blurs gendered lines and embodies femininity. However, gender-expansive people provide a hopeful antidote to the ongoing expression and perpetuation of gender-based violence. Gender-expansiveness provides a model for living beyond social systems, which attribute value, rights, distinction, status, according to gender. Gender expansive exemplars provide hope to a suffering world that we might find God's greater and better kingdom outside the categories which restrict already among us. Thank you. (laughs) I just wanted to reiterate my final point as the musicians coming up. Gender expansiveness that is, those people who expand and disrupt binary gender norms are a divine source of healing for our world. And we should not just tolerate them, not just welcome them, not just include them, but embrace them as leaders. Because these people have been given a divine gift, a revelation of God themselves that will heal our world for the sake of the kingdom which streams from the realms of heaven. Thank you so much. This has meant a lot.